This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded during a conference on Brexit and the democratic intellect in January 2017. The podcast is titled, This is a Story About You. Dr Simon Grimble researches into 19th and 20th century public intellectuals, such as John Ruskin and Richard Hoggart, and he's written about the role they played in civic society. One might have expected him, therefore, to have been on the front line of the Brexit debate, canvassing and arguing the case to remain. In this personal reflection, he wonders what his own failure to participate in the public conversation tells us about the state of our democratic institutions today. What do I mean by this title? Well, as I reflected on the reasons for the victory of the Leave campaign in the weeks after the 23rd June referendum on the UK's membership of the European Union, one thought in relation to the Remain campaign kept recurring, however just or unjust it was. I'm not saying it's right, but it kept coming back to me. And that thought was this. Everyone left it to everyone else. I speak for myself here. As an academic with an interest in issues of civic engagement and political participation, as well as an Italian partner who teaches European law and also have two bilingual children and potentially with dual nationality. So there are various reasons in which I, for which I could have been very engaged in this campaign. I did about two and a half hours of campaigning. I leafleted one quite long street (laughs) in Newcastle on Monday the 20th of June, and I did one and a half hours of canvassing in the Heaton area of Newcastle with Labour Party members on the day of the referendum itself. I wrote one email to someone who I knew was planning to vote to leave to try to get them to change their mind. I had one very brief argument with a Leave campaigner just off Durham Market Square on Tuesday the 21st of June. He called me a traitor and told me to go away because, of course, the go-home injunction doesn't operate with traitors because they don't have any home to go to. Um, But I have to say that I didn't feel very strongly about the exchange. The term traitor clearly meant a lot to the fairly elderly person who uttered it, but it was a term that I was able to receive with equanimity. It felt like what the philosopher Gilbert Ryle called a category mistake. I didn't recognize his category. Whether it was one is for someone else to say. I think this was the sum total of my civic engagement with the campaign. Of course, I read some articles in newspapers and online, but I'm not sure how significant that is. In short, whilst the implications of Brexit are extremely meaningful for myself and for my family, as well as obviously for wider society, I treated the campaign itself as a bad dream and I avoided it as much as possible. In hindsight, of course, this decision, which wasn't even really a decision in the sense that I did not decide not to participate, I just did not participate, seems both a mistake in a very narrow strategic sense But also, probably more importantly, it seems indicative, even symptomatic. But what was it symptomatic of? In the weeks after, I was reminded of my reading of the political scientist Peter Mayer's 2013 book, Ruling the Void, 
the hollowing of Western democracy, which describes the process by which, particularly since the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, a process of depoliticization has been underway across Europe and the US. Reduced voter turnouts, reduced membership of political parties, and reduced membership of trade unions. That's just some of the indexes, there are also others. Mayer in that book is particularly good at describing the mutually reinforcing aspects of this. People often talk about depoliticization, but they don't think about it as a mutual process with both politicians and the public retreating, and he does do that. And he says in that book, parties are failing, in other words, as a result of a process of mutual withdrawal or abandonment whereby citizens retreat into private life or into more specialised and often ad hoc forms of representation, whilst the party leaders withdraw into the institutions, drawing their terms of reference ever more readily from their roles as governors or public office holders. Parties are failing because the zone of engagement, the traditional world of party democracy, where citizens interacted with and felt a sense of attachment to their political leaders, is being evacuated. So this is Mayer's argument. And it's interesting, as I said, to notice that the process is two-way. Everybody, politicians, citizens, wants to withdraw into the safe space to where they feel, in the contemporary idiom, more comfortable. It's a point that is particularly well brought out in the editor's foreword to, uh, to Rooting the Void uh, by Mayer's friend and compatriot, the literary critic Francis Mulhern. And Mulhern writes that Rooting the Void, as we have it, is about Europe, chiefly the older democracies of the Western zone and the transnational polity of the European Union. But the vision it offers is quite general, as if renewing in its own idiom the classic warning Dete fabula narratur. This story is about you. It is a Latin tag which is used in various places in Horace's satires and also in Marx's Das Kapital because he's telling his German audience that this story, which is often about England, uh, is also about them. In hindsight, post the referendum, it did very much appear that the story was about me in particular and the culture and society of which I was part more generally. The story was about me in the sense that in this very limited sense I had not participated much in this campaign even though it was extremely significant and meaningful. And the European Union itself was, according to Mayer, part of this process of depoliticization. As Mayer writes, even if the system is not anti-democratic, it is nevertheless non-democratic at least in the conventional post-war European sense of the term. There is a lack of democratic accountability. There is little scope for input-oriented in legitimacy, and decision-makers can only rarely be mandated by voters. I don't intend to get into the justice of this analysis, whether the mayor is exactly right about it, but it is surely clear that these feelings are widespread and have tended to perpetuate the current apparent opposition between elite opinion and populist sentiment. And it is clear that this situation at both the level of the EU and also, as Mayer argues, at the level of indi individual nation states, that what it breeds is something that he calls polity scepticism, 
which is really scepticism about any particular polity that you happen to be in. And that scepticism could, of course, be reflected also in this country by the referendum that narrowly preceded it, which was about Scottish independence, which, of course, was exhibiting a very profound scepticism about the polity in which the Scottish people existed. As the man in the TV audience asked in the Scottish re referendum debates, if we're better together, which was the slogan of the No campaign, why aren't we better together? This was the moment when panic began to set in in the No camp, an apparently straightforward victory turned into the very strongly imagined possibility of defeat. At the same time, Mayer, while stating that only a left-right plane of competition can sustain democracy in the long term, as opposed to a clustering around the centre ground exhibiting what Freud called the narcissism of small differences, whilst he states that that's his position, he doesn't really get into issues of inequality that have moved closer to centre stage in the years since the 2008 financial crisis. But it would appear, at the most general level, that depoliticisation and increased inequality are likely to go hand in hand. If citizens retreat into private life, they are therefore unable to exert pressure on political leaders to redistribute wealth. In the absence of that pressure, everything seems to suggest that inequality grows. As Thomas Piketty says in his 2014 blockbuster Capital, capital never sleeps. In the absence of concerted and organised political and social pressure, we return to Victorian notions of private wealth and public squalor, to the world of Panamanian tax avoidance schemes on the one hand and food banks on the other. As Julia Unwin of the Joseph Rowntree Foundation said to the writer James Meek in his London Review of Books essay on housing in 2014, at the turn of the 20th century, the free market had provided squalid slums. We undoubtedly faced the recreation of slums, the enrichment of bad landlords, the risk of people being destitute. Beverage had soup kitchens. We have food banks. We've got something that does take us back full circle, a deep divide in way of life between people who are reasonably well off and those who are poor. There's always been a difference, but the distinction seems to be more stark now. In this kind of context, in what the political philosopher Chris Bertram has called the whirlpool of inequality, where everyone blames everyone else, it has to seem unsurprising that essentially negative campaigns, such as the Leave campaign, should be victorious. In that sense, I don't even really mean negative in a negative sense. I mean negative as in against something. As Maria Bertram says in Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, as she contemplates her own cage condition. And luckily, that iron gate, that ha-ha, give me a feeling of restraint and hardship. I cannot get out, as the starling said. Brexit does, apparently, give the possibility of exit, but to what or to where is left unclear. Or as Philip Larkin put it in his poem Once, beyond all this, the wish to be alone. Once, that poem actually ends with a refrain, beneath all this desire of oblivion runs, as if aloneness is the condition that precedes death, which is what the fundamental wish is for. After all, there are no compromises, 
no power sharing in death, the basic unsatisfactoriness of civic life is not in question. In the context of this particular nation, this does have to be associated with what Paul Gilroy has called post-imperial melancholy, as though what is lost is both resented for being lost and marked by a feeling that it was never really deserved, which I suppose can make the feelings of resentment even stronger. I want the empire back, as a relative said in relation to Brexit, although as a parent I would say I want doesn't get. If in the depoliticized but unequal world of these post-imperial islands, Brexit could take on the character of inevitability, though in a certain other ways it was anything but, what is, in the contemporary cliche, the way forward? As one or two of you will know, I am interested in the work of the Scottish philosopher and historian of ideas, George Davy, who is concerned with a democratic intellect, as detailed in his two books, The Democratic Intellect, and the crisis of the democratic intellect. In a Scottish context, lots of things have been said about those books, and I'm not going to get into those details, but broadly speaking, Davy is concerned with the relationship between the experts and the people. He states his overall case towards the end of the second book. He says, the words democratic intellect offer a 20th century formulation of an old problem. Does the control of a group of whatever kind, belong as of right to the few, the experts, exclusively, and not at all to the ignorant many? Or are the many entitled to share the control because the limited knowledge of the many, when it is pooled and critically restated through mutual discussion, provides a lay consensus capable of revealing certain of the limitations of interest in the expert's point of view? Or thirdly, it may be held that this consensus knowledge of the many entitles them to have full control, excluding the experts. In his book, Davy follows the middle way, perhaps not so surprising or so interesting, and perhaps his work generally slants things in the direction of the experts. People with an apparently meritocratic experience of education sometimes have a tendency to do that. I'm an expert, these other people are experts, We've all naturally acquired this knowledge through this process of, of exploring our potential, and these are the people to be listened to. But at the same time, he is still trying to think about the relationship between the experts and the many. And he doesn't, in this particular account, and in much of his work, he doesn't talk directly about the economic structure of society very much, or what an early 20th century film by a man called Alan Dwan called uh, the Wall of Money, which is a, a film about working conditions at a mill. But what I think is interesting about Davies' work is how much he focuses discussion not solely on what various 19th and 20th century Scottish, Scottish intellectuals said, what they argued for and against, but on, how they, but on how they said it, on what they were like, as it were, stylistically. This is the man as another Latin tag went. Davy is interested in what he calls characteristic personalities. They were like this or like that, and in being like this or like that, they formed a relation to their audience who are not just imagined as an audience, they are potential or actual interlocutors. In that sense, a democratic space is opened up 
despite the very many felt pressures on that space. Democratic spaces enable people to be heard and enable points of view to be developed and not just be experienced as resentments. Of course, the question of who or what is in charge still matters very much. But these democratic spaces can also help make less unequal societies in that they reveal possibilities of solidarity between people who are not the same. And this translates into cultural awareness and political pressure. This doesn't solve Brexit, but then Brexit is not an equation and it is not going to be solved. A phrase which also comes to mind is the title of a book by a historian about early 20th century British culture called uh, A Culture for Democracy, that the need that was experienced in the early 20th century to create a culture that could encompass the possibility that we would be living in a democracy. So what needs to happen in order to prepare the kinds of engagement that we need to live in a democratic society? And I suppose that would be my final emphasis, is that the desire and the need to create a culture for democracy is something that we need to go back to thinking about uh, because, for various reasons, that process has been, over a long period of time, undermined. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.